Okay, I'm going to read a, a few scriptures, and then we'll trust God for how he will correlate them. The first one I'm going to read is from Genesis, the third chapter, and this goes into when, when uh, Adam and Eve fell. In verse 6 it says, And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant, or something to be desired to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. And the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves apron. And they heard the voice of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord amongst the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called unto him, unto Adam, and said unto him, Where are you? And he said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree whereof I commanded you that you should not eat? Of course, and we know the rest of it goes into the blame game. And, uh, you know, that when we fall and we don't want to be any of us, want to be accountable or responsible to God, we're going to blame someone else. We're going to shift the responsibility and the accountability on a person or a circumstance or a situation. And then we're going to read from Psalm 34. Psalm 34, verse 3, it says, Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together, and his name has to do with his nature. I sought the Lord, and he heard me, and he delivered me from all my fears. They looked unto him, and were lightened. They were lit up, and their faces were not ashamed. Notice that? Their faces were not ashamed. And again, the face is, in Isaiah 3, 8, 9, it says, your countenance will either testify for you or against you. So when it says their faces were not ashamed, they were inwardly there was no shame, and that was reflected outwardly because of the light. Okay, and then it says this in the same Psalm in 34, in verse 18, it says, The Lord is near, very near and close to those that are of a broken heart, and that means, of course, the submitted will, and delivers such of those that be of a contrite spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them out of them all. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Evil will slay the wicked, and they that hate the righteous will be desolate. Notice that word desolate. The Lord redeems the soul of his servants, and none of them that trust in him will be desolate. We studied that word. We had that word desolate a few days ago. I don't remember exactly when, and it's the Hebrew word asham, A-S-H-A-M. And it means, to be desolate means to have guilt based upon shame. And of course, that speaks of condemnation. And we know that who we are in Christ, in Romans 8 verse 1, there is no shame, no condemnation, and no guilt about who we are in Christ. So it says again, Psalm 34, uh, verse 21, evil 
will slay the wicked, the unbelievers, and they that hate the righteous will be desolate. The Lord redeems the soul of his servants, and none of them that trust in him will be desolate. In other words, will be have anything to shame or to be guilty of, because, of course, we've been set free in, in Galatians 5, verse 1, uh, based upon our position in Christ, and that's based upon Romans chapter 5, 1 and 2, there's no condemnation for us there. There's just the freedom that we have, uh, and we can experience that by his pure grace. And then, so when we see those verses, and then we see this, and now we get into exactly where we are in church history. And where we are, if we, if we needed anything to define the particular age, the time period where we, as the church, are right now, you're going to have to get into and see Revelations 2 and 3. And where it talks about the seven churches, it's really one church, it's just the fullness of the whole church that's being described here throughout its history. But when we get to the third chapter, the third chapter of the uh, book of Revelations, this is what we see here. And this is where we are right now. Okay. And it says in 3 verse 14, it says, And the angel of the church, that local assembly, always remember the church, okay, that's who we are, the angel of the church, of the Laodiceans, right? These things, says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. Of course, that's Christ. He's, he's the Amen, and he is the beginning of the creation of God. We see that, again, all through the scriptures. Uh, he's the first fruits in 1 Corinthians 15, 21 to 23. Uh, he, he is the first begotten from the dead. We see that. You see that all in the book of Romans, especially in Romans uh, 8, uh, 28, 29, and 30. Now, here's what we see. This is what we see here, that Christ is the witness, uh, the faithful. He's the faithful one and true witness. He's the beginning. He's our beginning, and he's our eternal end. But he says in verse 15, I know your works, okay, that you're neither hot nor cold. Now, for any of us, again, we're in Christ. There is no shame for us as far as God sees us in Christ. Doesn't see it a bit because he sees us in Christ. But it says this, I know your works, that you're neither cold nor hot. Can we be that in the flesh? We'll either be cold or hot, right? Uh, cold in the flesh especially. And and I were, I, I would desire that you were either cold or hot. I would rather have you on fire, consumed with my love, or completely just cold. The one thing that he said is because you are lukewarm, boy, lukewarm. And of course, this is going into uh, our position and our experience in Christ. That's what it's going into. He would rather have us in, in each area because we're going to grow, right? He wants us in each area to be consumed on fire with his love. But if not, we're hot and cold, that means we go back and forth, right? Who we are in Christ, back into the flesh. Who we are in Christ, hot with him, back into the cold flesh. Back and forth. 
and that's lukewarm. So when it says here, I would rather have you uh, lukewarm, I would rather have you not lukewarm, and neither cold nor hot, he said, where it says, I will spew you out of my mouth. Okay, th there's many that would teach this, that it's a loss of salvation, which of course we know that is completely incorrect. Can't be such a thing. We didn't deserve to get born again to receive Christ as our Savior and placed in him. There was nothing we did that merited us to do it. It was his merit, Christ's merit, his worth. He put us in there, and thank God, in Malachi 3.6, he's the Lord our God, he doesn't change. He doesn't change his mind, thank God. So he doesn't change his mind about the fact that there's no shame for us in Christ. There's no change of that. And therefore, we're not condemned. That's why even when we do in the flesh get cold and get lukewarm, it's not condemned. he's not condemning us. He starts to correct us. And sometimes he has to allow in Jeremiah 2, verse 19, our own backsliding to correct us when we refuse the grace of chastisement in Hebrews, the 12th chapter, verses 4 right through to 29, and in Proverbs 3, 11 and 12, he ch chastens and disciplines and corrects every one of us that he loves. So the chastening and the correction and discipline is, is literally a manifestation of his love for us. It's not against us. He's not against us in Romans 8, verse 31. He's for us because we're in Christ. And so here we see again very, very clearly that I will spew you out of my mouth. Okay, when we function in the flesh and when we function in sin or separation from him as a result of sin, and that's being cold and going back and forth, being lukewarm, he can't fellowship with us. That's what that means, to spew you out of, out of, he spews us out of his mouth, meaning there's no fellowship. Out of his mouth proceeds the word, that's Christ. And when we receive it and we're one with it, we have fellowship. <laughs> so he never spews us out in our position. That could be impossible. He would have to spew Christ out who's seated at his right hand. But in terms of fellowship, this is just making it clear. He can't fellowship with us. Okay, because remember we said the other day, if you if you tally up all the sins of every believer that were ever put on him as the sin sacrifice in Second Corinthians five verse twenty one, even one, just one sin is is the same equal as all of those. Okay, so when it says I spew out in my mouth, because why you say what, I am rich. Is there any riches in the flesh? Being cold being lukewarm. How would a believer get lukewarm? They just go back to the world, back to the old things, back to the way the world functions, even back to the way, we'll see this too, back to the way even the world dresses. Because they dress, your outward dress for all of us, and this is in type for all of us. But our outward dress reveals what's going on on the inside. Right? So if I'm pure on the inside, what am I going to look like on the outside? I'm going to have that purity. And of course, that's our protection and safety. So it says, because I am, because you say, notice he didn't say it, he says, because you say I am rich and increase with goods. What is our true richness? Isn't it where all the riches of, of what we have in Christ in Colossians 2 verse 3 as the treasure, 
the true treasure that's in us in 2 Corinthians 4, 7. Isn't that our true riches? Hasn't he made us rich in Philippians 4, verse 19, through Christ, our richness? The very richness that God could give, the very height of his richness is his son that he's given us. That's our true richness. That's our true riches. And uh, when we add to that, when, when we add, all we're doing is replacing him. When we add to, when we think we have to add to something about who he is in us, well, all it does is just it lowers him in our eyes and then that lowers ourselves. And that can even be manifested by what, how we function in the world, that look like the world, dress like the world. And we'll see those things. Because you say, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of what? Nothing. I don't think I need anything because I think everything else is met in me by these material things that we've discussed several times in those 34 verses of Matthew, the sixth chapter. And we can see that clearly as, as God brings the scriptures to us. I have need of nothing and you don't know that you are wretched. You're wretched. Now, are we wretched in Christ? No. But if I function in the flesh that's in me, in Romans 8, 9, that I'm not of, what is my experience? Are we wretched? We all have to get to that place, all of us. Been there many times. Was <laughs> there this morning myself. As God's dealing me with me and showing me, see this wretchedness that you find, it's not who you are. It's not who you are. It's not how I love you. It's not. I love you, but I don't love the wretchedness that you're not anymore. <laughs> you're wretched. That's where we have to go. When we get the beautiful truths of Romans, the third chapter, Romans, the fourth chapter, Romans, the fifth chapter, the much more grace, how to submit ourselves and reckon properly. Not to, not to continually die to particular things constantly, but to continue to reckon we're already dead to them in Christ. In Romans the 6th chapter, we have to get into Romans the 7th chapter. In Romans the 7th chapter, it's those 40 times, I think, I, me, myself, I'm functioning apart from who I am in Christ. Everything becomes about me, myself, and I. <laughs> Very lonely place. Till finally... The cry that he has to bring us to in specific areas as we grow in grace in 2 Peter 3, verse 18, as we grow in grace and then have that experiential knowledge, he has to bring us to the place of helplessness and hopelessness in ourselves. That's the place where the individual, where you and I, he brings us there because we would never go there. <laughs> John 21, 18, he had to carry Peter. He said, I'm going to carry you where you wouldn't go. Thank God. And so that's the place where the cry in Romans 7, verse 24, is not, oh God, who will help me in this condition? Because there, is there any help in that condition? Is there help in that? No, hasn't it been dealt with and crucified in Romans 6, 1 through 6? Hasn't that been crucified? So can God help that? Is he going to help me in the area that I'm functioning in the flesh? No, he's not going to help me at all. He's not going to help me. That's what makes humility so necessary. Our help is the fact that he humbles us 
for two reasons. Maybe we're functioning in the flesh, humility, or maybe there's potential, still need to be humble, so that his grace comes in and we make the adjustment. The only way we can make the adjustment and the transition from the flesh experientially into, the, into who we are in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit is only through grace, something we can't deserve. So the cry is not, oh God, who will help me? In Romans 7, 24, it is who will deliver me <laughs> from the body of this, what? Sin and death. Who's going to deliver me? Fact is, have we already been deliver, delivered through the death of Christ? Did we die with him? In Galatians 2, 20. Did we die with him? In Colossians 3, verse 3. The fact that when we receive Christ, we receive the fact that we died with him. He not only died for us and as us, we died with him. And that's what faith is saying. I receive you as my Savior and realize <laughs> I'm dead to that. What are we dead to? Shame, guilt, condemnation, worry, fear, insecurity, pride. All those things that would have separated us had we not had the substitute Christ to reconcile us to the propitiation that the Son has dealt with to the Father and for us. And it's a pretty incredible thing when we see it. So, again, when it says here that you are wretched, that's what, in, in here, in Revelations 3.17, that's what the cry is in Romans 7.24. Oh, wretched man that I am. Really, is that who we are? Is it? Is it how someone says that we are? How someone treats us or rejects us and says we're wretched? Is that who we really are in God's sight in Christ? No way. No, God. No, he loves us so much and he's made us so brand new in him. In 2 Corinthians 5, 17, those things have passed away. They're not, on the, they're not in the process of passing away. We're going to realize them experientially that they have as we grow. But positionally, they're, done, they're gone. They're done. And that's why in Job 36, verse 7, God never removes his eye from the righteous because our righteousness in 1 Corinthians 1, 30 is Christ who's in us and we in him. And we're one. He doesn't see us separated from that. And that's the only reason he lovingly corrects and disciplines and chastises us. It's just an incredible mark of his love. And it's an incredible mark of his ownership over us. What he's saying there really is, listen, I bought you with a price. A price, and we're going to find out the price this morning. It's a great price we've been bought with, his son. Great price. He bought us, and thank God we're not our own. Meaning, we can't live apart from being bought and experiencing the reality of who Christ is in us is our very life. <laughs> because if that's the case, all we do is exist. And in the existence, which is the flesh, separated from Christ, what are we? Wretched. Miserable. How many times we go back to the things we know? It didn't do us any good, but we keep going back. There's where he's teaching us the will. The will, the necessity for the very necessity for the yoke in Matthew 11, 28 to 30. We need the constant restraint, don't we? So that we don't function in a will apart from him. And just experience existence and just trying to make it moment by moment. And we've already got it made because we're already made in him. 
So when we see this in the flesh, wretched, miserable, and what? Poor, and what? Blind, hardened, and look what it says, and naked. What was Adam and Eve when they fell? Even what they tried to cover themselves with, taking the things of the earth and trying to cover themselves, the fact that they're naked and that they have shame, still, in, in the sight of the voice of God, in Genesis 3, verse 8, what were they? What was their confession? I'm naked. No matter what I try to cover myself with. Naked. Then what is it? Verse 18. This is the word of Christ to the individual, to us. To us, when we function in areas in the flesh where we're wretched, miserable, poor, hardened. Blind means hardened. And naked, what does he do? I condemn you. No, I counsel you. <laughs> There's no condemnation in his counsel. There's no condemnation in conviction. There's only conviction so we won't experience what the flesh does like the unsaved do, condemnation. Because God can only do one or two things. He can only do judge or grace out. That's all he can do. And that's 1 Corinthians 11, 31 and 32. He, operation chastisement comes in when we don't judge the flesh that's already been judged. Why does he do it? So we won't be condemned with the world. Because he bought us at such a great price. I counsel you to buy. What does it mean to buy for us? What would that mean? Submit, wouldn't it? What does it mean to buy? And so we go to the scriptures once again, and we trust God to bring them to us through the power of the Holy Spirit to buy. So uh, Proverbs 23, 23 says, buy the truth. And what? Sell it not. Don't sell it. How do we sell it out? The flesh. Sell it out so quickly, don't we? Flesh will sell out the truth about who Christ is in us and who we are in him. Proper image. We'll sell it out. Also wisdom and understanding, the rest of that verse in Proverbs 23, 23 says. But look at what it says in, in Isaiah 55, verse 1. Ho, everyone that thirsts. Boy, when we are not Drinking in who we are in Christ. We're going to go drink somewhere else. And we begin to develop a taste for the world instead of the things of Christ. So that taste is this. Because it starts with Psalm 34, verse 2. Let the humble hear thereof. And that means to submit. But we refuse the humility. When we do, eh, we won't hear properly. We won't see proper. We won't properly. We won't understand properly. Because... When it says in Psalm 34, verse 8, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is what? Good. We seeking good outside of him? Is there any good in the world system? Is there any good in the flesh? In John 6, 63, and in Romans 7, 18. Is any good there? No. No matter what we try, no matter what we try to cover that shame with, experientially, it just won't be. Because are we functioning in who we are in Christ when we function in shame? So even the fact that he chastens us is what? He loves us. And it's not a proper experience. Oh, everyone that thirsts, come. You know, that's the necessity for the yoke in Matthew eleven twenty eight to 30. Come unto me. Turn away from the world. Turn away from the lust of the flesh. Come. Submit your will unto me. Right? Come unto me. 
and learn of me. And when you learn of me, you're going to learn my love. And guess what it's done about you as an individual? How much I love you so individually. How much I designed you for me alone and you for me and me for you. Oh boy, so incredible. Come to the waters and you that have what? No money. This poor man cried. We read that in Psalm 34, verse 5. This poor man cried. 34, 5 and 6. I'm poor. I don't have anything in me. He has to bring us to that place, right? What's poor? In the, oh, I've been functioning in the flesh. Oh, my God. It's helpless and it's hopeless. I'm poor. Okay, turn. Turn. This is who you are. Come to the waters, you that have no money. Come, you buy and eat. Yea, come, buy wine and milk. Those are beautiful things in the word. Without money and without price. You, you and I, we cannot put a price to what the Father gave us with his son. His son is beyond price. You can't, you can't buy it. That's why it was given freely. We can't, can't buy it. Right? Look what it says in verse 2. Wherefore, why do you spend money for that which is not bread? Who's our true bread? Remember the type that was brought out in Exodus 16, 12, 13, 14, and 15, the manna? That manna that was coming down was a type of the, of the great type, the great pearl of price, Christ himself. And he describes it in, Matthew, in, in John the 6th chapter, and starting verse 30, go right to verse 57. He talks about himself as the bread that came down from heaven. You know, that's what he's doing now. The bread, the very life, the word that he is, is coming down for us. And we can receive it and feed on it. And when we do, we're going to taste and see, oh, how good this is. Nothing tastes like this. Nothing tastes like him. Nothing can be compared to him. Who will you compare him to? Read Isaiah, the 40th chapter. Who, who do you compare him to? Who's he like? There's no one like him. Wherefore do you spend money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which satisfies not? Hearken diligently unto me. Submit, hearken unto me. Submit yourself, and eat you that which is good, and let your soul delight itself in fatness. Incline your ear constantly, and come unto me. Again, Matthew 11, 28 to 30. Here, and your soul will experience the life that Christ truly is in you and who you truly are in him and a beautiful identification of a proper image. And that's who we are. So back to Revelations. I counsel you to buy, in verse 18 of, of Revelations 3, gold tried in the fire, tried in fire, that you may be what? Truly rich. This, Christ is your riches. Again, Philippians 4, verse 19. And white raiment, sparkling. You know, this poor man cried. He was lit up in Psalm 34, 5, and 6. And, and he was lit up. He sparkled. And we have a sparkling, pure image of who we are in Christ. It is so incredible about who we are in Christ. And he'll show us that clearly and continue for all eternity in Revelations 2.17, we'll have that intimate exchange of a sparkling life that he is with each of us with that little diamond, that diamond. And inscribed on that is the true character, a true character in nature. In other words, he fit us. 
So Colossians 1, verse 12, he made us fit or he made us qualified to be in the light because we have the very light that Christ is. We're lit up and now we have fellowship. Is there any darkness in light and fellowship? Is there any flesh involved? And boy, there's not for any of us. So I counsel you to buy, to buy continually, experientially, gold tried in the fire that you may be rich. First Peter 1 Peter 1.7, the trial of your faith, the trial of your dependence is much more precious even than gold that perishes. Though it be tried with fire, may be found unto the praise and honor and glory of Jesus Christ, whom you don't see him visibly, but you love him. Because he's so real, as, as much as real in your experience. And that's where reality is, the experience of who you are in Christ. Just as real as if he'd be here in person. It's just as real. And so, look what it says. Be clothed with white raiment. This is position, but going into experience. And the shame of your nakedness. What's associated with being naked, not being covered? Shame. Shame of your nakedness does not appear. Appear to who? Does God see me that way? No. Do I see myself that way? Yes. We don't want that shame because he doesn't want it in us. And the fact that we don't even want it in us is, the, is his fact in us. And that's 2 Timothy 1.12. And we won't be ashamed when we have a proper form or image in 2 Timothy 1 verse 13. And that's what's being developed in us in our experience, that truth about who we are positionally in him. That your nakedness does not appear and anoint your eyes with eye self. What's that? That's the Holy Spirit who's the ointment taking the things of Christ in John 16, 13 and 14 and he is applying it to our view, to our sight as we submit to him, as we don't resist him as we don't hide from him, as we're not functioning in the flesh. He takes the things of Christ in John 16, 13, and 14. And, and, and with that, with that ointment, does away with the interference. And we see clearly Christ. See him high as we see, as they saw, as, as Isaiah saw, but not as, even as clearly as we can. In Isaiah 6, verse 1, we see him high and lifted up of everything and we're with him it's just incredible high and lifted up <laughs> and his train eh, his robes of righteousness the robes of his very character and nature filled the whole temple there was no room and that's and that's a picture of you and i in christ he wants no room in us for anything other than christ because it'll be his glory and when it's his glory, you know what it is? It's his grace. And by his grace, I can only make those adjustments. In 2 Peter 3.18, I begin to grow as I submit through humility and dependence. And then God gives that grace. And with that grace, in 2 Peter 3.18, comes an experiential knowledge of Christ being glorified. Okay. In me and me in him. And that's irreplaceable. And so that uh, anoint your eyes with eye salve, okay, that you may see. And that goes into, again, in Ephesians, the first chapter, 1, 18, that the eyes of your understanding being lit up. 
That's our experience, our true experience. Verse 19, as many as I love, I rebuke. I don't know. Have, have you, like me, since I've been back here, been rebuked by the word? Have you, like me? Yeah, that's his love. No condemnation in that. There's no condemnation in being rebuked. The flesh may not like it, but is that who we are? <laughs> no. We, yeah, listen, I, do I like being rebuked in the flesh? No. But is that who I am? No. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. He has to rebuke us and give us the opportunity to submit to that chastening, to his love. Look, be zealous, therefore, and change your mind. We can't do that unless he humbles us and gives us the grace, the ability, that substance to make the adjustment to even change our mind. Because if not, we're just going to be minding the flesh in Romans the 8th chapter and verses 4 to 8, and not the things of the Spirit. We inhibit the Spirit from taking the eye self and showing us who we are in Christ. That's what we resist. And that's where James 4, verse 6, what, what does it say? God resists who? The proud. Is he resisting who I am? No, he's resisting who I am not. He's resisting and whom I'm not. That's what he's resisting. That's his love. Resisting you and I from functioning in shame and guilt and condemnation and from a, a false experience of being wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. But again, as many as I love, I rebuke. I can't tell you how many times. I've never been, <laughs> since I came back, I've said this before, I thought in, in coming back here that, you know, that God had this great plan that he was going to do this great work through me. And he had me back here so he could do a great work in me. And I've never been more rebuked in my life since I've been back here, personally. Have you? <laughs> Let me tell you, it's just it's just as equal, probably even more for me. I think. <laughs> as many as I love, I rebuke and chase and be zealous, therefore, and change your mind. Because you know why? You know what he's doing? Waiting to condemn us in Isaiah 30, verse 18? Now he's waiting to be, to be what? Patient. Where is his patience located? In the son of his love who he's graced us out with in John 1, verse 14. He is filled up with all that grace and truth is. And do you think that God wants anything in us but to be completely filled up with all that grace and truth is in Christ and us and our own individuality and in our own private and public experience and manifestation? And we be the epistle, the epistle that he is in us individually because no one can do that for you but him. And that's in 1 Corinthians 3, those first six verses. So that 7 through 9 don't come into our experience. So here it is. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. What's he knocking on? The will. How does the door open? Does he pull it from the outside? No, it opens on the inside. Come on in. 
You want to talk about missing somebody? Come on in. I miss you, Lord. I can't tell you how many times I've said that. Lord, I've had enough of this. I miss you. Please come in. And that's experience, by the way. Come in and be my proper experience. I stand at the door and knock. If any, if any of you, any man is, the, is who we are in Christ, by the way. Not just any man, unsaved. It's who we are in Christ. If any man open the door, I will come into him. Jeez, oh man. And we'll sup with him. That's fellowship. And he with me. But if my will isn't given over and it's given to the flesh, can there be fellowship? It just can't be. To him that overcomes, how do we overcome? Have we already been overcome and be, been made more than a conqueror in Romans 8, verse 37, in our position in Christ? You know what he wants us? He wants to continually make us overcomers in our experience through his love. To him that overcomes, will I grant to sit with me? Pew. To sit with me in my throne, meaning who's on the throne in my heart? Is there room for the flesh and Christ? No, there's only room for one. And when you do, even when you suffer, when it's not your fault, when you are lied about, when you are rejected, let me tell you something, that's a badge of promotion. Because in 2 Timothy 2.12, if you suffer with me, you hear that? We never suffer alone. My God, if you suffer with me, you'll reign with me. You don't have to escape. You don't have to change. You don't. You just, you just reign with me. You'll reign with me. Because I'm going to reign with you in a way that I designed you in your own particular, peculiar design about who you are in me and who I am in you and no one else can be like that. Did you know that he's made each one of us to sparkle in a way that no one else can? Just can't. It's like the stars. Did you know that as many as there are, we can't, the human mind cannot compute them. Each one is different. You see that in 1 Corinthians, the 15th chapter. You can start getting into those 30s right down to the end. You're going to see one star differs from another in glory as it's being manifested. To him that overcomes will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am set down with my Father in his throne. He that has an ear. Come on. He that has an ear. What's that mean? Just this? No. You have a will? Come on. You have a will. And I have a will. Let, let him hear. Give yourself over what the Spirit says into the church. Because if you walk in the Spirit, Right? If you walk in the Spirit, in Galatians 5.16, you will not walk in the lust of the flesh. Why? Because the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And these two are contrary one to another, so that you can't do the things that you would even desire to do. Thank God when we function in Christ, we no longer desire the things of the flesh. The bondage, the fear, the worry, the wretched, the miserable, the poor, the hardened, he that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says unto the church. We're just going to touch very briefly on 1 Peter, and then we have to end it. And then we can get into it as, as God would lead, and as he does lead. Uh, in 1 Peter, the third chapter, we can get into those uh, truths again in, uh, on Thursday and Friday, if God sees fit. 
because I never know. <laughs> I never know what my need is. <coughs> never mind anyone else's, but I know who the one that does. And when he knows our need and he shows it to us, there's never any condemnation, but it's very piercing in love. Piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul, fleshly, self-conscious living, and spirit, who we truly are in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit, in Hebrews 4, verse 12. And that's why we said, in our own spiritual battle, no one can battle for you. I can pray for you and encourage you, but that's your, that, whose battle is it in you individually? It's Christ, and that's why you put the armor on in Ephesians 6, 10, right through 18. But the 17th verse, well, 16th, you better have the shield up. You better know all those things about who you are in Christ, his person and what he's accomplished for you as an individual. That's the shield, Ephesians 6, 16. Next thing you need to take up, having the armor on is the sword of the Spirit. You have to wield, each of us. No one can do that for you. You, each of you, need that sword of the Spirit. And that's Hebrews 4.12 in, in conjunction with uh, Ephesians 6, verse uh, 17. So here we are in 1 Peter, the third chapter. 1 Peter, the third chapter. This goes into the sanctification of marriage. Yes, this is talking truthfully and truly about husbands and wives and how they function. But it's also, is Christ our husband? Is he our bridegroom? Are we his bride? You never separate those two from God's order. So in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1, it says, Likewise, you wives, be in subjection to your own husbands. Notice that. That if any obey not the word, that even if they don't obey the word, whether they're born again or not, some, we said recently, some, uh, one was married, the other, uh, one was born again, the other wasn't. They got married. Now there's going to be conflict. All right? So, but if it's the saved wife and doesn't have the saved husband, or if it's, if it's the saved wife and a saved husband, but the husband's functioning in the flesh, <laughs> this gives the provision right here for all of us. <laughs> Likewise, you wives, be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word, what they know is right, or what they're ignorant of, or what they rebel against, that if any obey not the word, they also may, without the word, be won by the lifestyle. The lifestyle, it says. The submission of the wife to Christ as her head in that area. The lifestyle of the wives. While they behold your chaste lifestyle. Chaste here. And God said, write it down, and I did, right here. That lifestyle that is so pure that you can't mix anything with it about who the woman truly is. And if it's not coming down from the head in that initiation, Christ will bypass him and still keep it going. It's so incredible. That lifestyle is the reverence that she'll have for Christ. She wants to love and reverence her husband. When she's not able to, she doesn't have to reject or resist or come against him by functioning in the flesh. She can be protected by submitting to Christ, reverencing him, and then functioning in the purity of the life that is hers in Christ. Right? Through what? Through submission to Christ. When you can't function in proper order, husband and wife, then the wife can still submit to Christ and still function in an order. 
until hopefully the husband gets right <laughs> in areas. And if he, if he refuses to submit to the word in proper order, then he can go right around and still be functioning towards that husband through the literal testimony, the revelation of the life of Christ in, that, in the wife. So it's chaste. She's pure. She's pure. She's not mixed in any way with the world. She doesn't look like the world. She doesn't talk like the world. She doesn't listen to what the world listens to. And she doesn't dress like the world. Everything is covered so that the shame of her nakedness does not appear to anyone. First and foremost, to God himself, even Mary, and then to her husband. There's no question about it. See? Who's adorning, in 1 Peter 3, 3, who's adorning? Let it not be the outward adorning of the plating of hair, of wearing of gold, or of putting on apparel. There's where, there's where honestly, women especially need to be very careful about how they dress. Certain areas in a woman need to be completely covered. God has saw to that. He's seen to that through his order. Literally. Because I'll tell you, there's a lot of evil, lustful things going on in that world. And God forbid that any of us or any godly woman should be the cause of anyone else stumbling by not having things covered properly. It's a fact. It's true. And it keeps you safe and secure in his love for you. First and foremost, it's the eyes of the Lord, Christ, for the wife. And if it's that, then it's for the husband. This is making it clear, crystal clear. We're not that, look, anything like them, seriously. We're going to keep covered. Yeah, I mean, huge. We don't dress like the world. Not men too, of course, you know. Men, like in my day, you know, uh, shirt wide open, you know, the goal, you know. <laughs> in that sense, yeah, seriously. It's supposed to be all, but especially for the woman, because she is a responder. That's what need, that's why women need to be covered. It's no no question about it, right? Love covers. Did you hear that one? Mm -hmm. Proverbs ten verse twelve, First Peter four eight. Love covers and keeps covered a multitude of sins. You wouldn't believe how some marriages have ended. Because just because of the not right order and what we're reading, not a right order, and the woman dresses a certain way, and then then that causes other men to be tempted, and then what can she fall into outside of the order? I'm just telling you, I've seen it happen too many times. And there's a reason why at least one out of two Christian marriages end in divorce, just because of not functioning in a proper order, don't know what a shield is, the shield of faith, don't know how to have a sword, and don't know how to dress properly. Who's adorning? Don't let it be the outward adorning of the plating of the hair and of wearing of gold or of putting on the apparel. That's what we give most attention to, don't we? How we look. Well, who are you doing it for? Who are you dressing for? Do we need attention other than Christ? Have we been distracted in Hebrews 12 too? Away from him, whose eyes we should only have. We should only have eyes for Christ, each of us individually, because he only has an eye for us and who he is in us. But let it be the hidden man of the heart. More inwardly, God been dealing with me, Ed, 
be more interested in dealing with the inward. Because when the inward is dealt with, it'll manifest the outward. And if you're dressed right inwardly, guess what? You'll be dressed right outwardly. And the certain forms, like God created women with a certain form, will be covered, won't be exposed to the eyes of every individual. Seriously. And not be a stumbling block, right? God is a jealous God. I know one thing, I am, when I'm right. Right? I only want, I only want God to have eyes for my wife, and I only want her to have eyes for me and me for her. Period. And that goes into material dress, mark it down. Because whether you're ignorant of it or not, if your wife dresses a certain way, she's exposed to the eyes of extremely evil, lustful men in the flesh. And a Christian can function in that way and be tempted. There's no question about it. But again, it go, doesn't it go into proper order? Now, the husband, is he going to be demanding? No. No, but we need proper teaching. We most certainly do. Right? We, we most certainly do. Look, but let it be the hidden man of the heart and that which is not corruptible. Even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which in the sight of God is great price. We're going to get into the, what that great price is when we have more time. Because we don't right now. But listen... You and I are so loved by God. His love is so jealous for us. In Exodus 20, verse 5, in Exodus 34, and verse 13, in Deuteronomy 4, verse 24, and Hebrews 12, verse 29, he is so jealous over us that he, and through the purity of the fire of his love, through that word in our experience, wants to keep us pure. He wants to keep our conscience pure. There's nothing like going to bed at night having a pure conscience. Oh, boy. I can tell you, nothing replaces that. Nothing replaces it. Husbands, love your wives. Don't be demanding, but be ever-loving and help them. And wives, help your husbands, too. And we can do that, okay? By not appearing like the world, not listening to the music of the world, Because is it just the lyrics or will the beat cause me to, do, to live in the flesh? There's no question about it. Not the music of the world? Because mm -mm. the enemy's designed certain beats to function for the Christian in the flesh so they can keep him in bondage and shame and guilt. <laughs> Had to learn that one. Yep. No. No worldly music. No worldly dress. No worldly style. Style? What's that? I see style right here in 1 Peter 3. That's God's style. Okay? He covered them immediately, didn't he, in the garden with complete skins. They were both completely covered, by the way. They weren't bikini skins for the woman. Trust me. They weren't. That still shows a form. That still shows an outward form. It does. And that's supposed to be for his eyes only. First, if the woman dresses for Christ first, who's she going to dress to? She's going to dress to and for her husband, vice versa. And that's the way it works because he's jealous and he loves us. He loves you and I with the purity of a love that's just unbelievably gorgeous. 
Jesus' name.